0: Hi. Today I want to talk about something that is a little bit outside of my usual wheelhouse, which means that this is not an episode about American politics. This week I want to talk about Australia's unofficial national anthem, the Ottoman Empire, a rocky peninsula on the Aegean Sea, and the human cost of the First World War. My name is Ellis Tucci. You're listening to Hidden History, and this is Episode 94, Waltzing Matilda. As usual, Hidden History is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you enjoy this episode and want to hear more, then subscribe and share the show with your friends. All of the sources and accompanying links are in the description. I'd encourage you to check those out to do some further learning. So, let's get into it. It's kind of difficult figuring out where and when in history to start telling this story. Do I start in 1299, when Osman I united the tribes of Anatolia to form the Ottoman Empire? Do I start in 1788, when British ships brought the first convicts to Australia? Do I start in 1895, when "Waltzing and Matilda was written? Ultimately, the answer is none of those places. Ultimately, this is a story about the brutality and human cost of World War I. And so ultimately, we need to start with what's called the July Crisis of 1914. Well, I actually suppose that that's not true. In order to get full context, we need to go back a little earlier. For about 300 years, Serbia was occupied by the Ottoman Empire, with a brief window of Austro-Hungarian rule between 1788 and 1792. Eventually, the Serbs grew tired of being imperial subjects, and so from 1804 to 1835 fought the Serbian Revolution, which would successfully repel the Ottomans and install Milos Obrenovic, whose family would rule almost interrupted for about a 100 years, as the new Prince of Serbia. It didn't take too long for discontents to bubble up in the Balkans, though. Ideas from the French Revolution had found their way across the Danube, and as the ruling family of Serbia became increasingly cozy with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, radical groups within the Serbian military, the most famous of which being the Black Hand, began to increasingly adopt an Italian political philosophy known as Irredentism which means that a given country has a right to reclaim ownership over lands that, at some point in the indeterminate past, were taken from it. In 19th century Italy, that means that Italian irredentists sought control over every Italian-speaking area in southern Europe. Across the Adriatic, it meant that Serbia believed that it was destined to restore a mythic kingdom that ruled over all ethnic Serbs in the Balkans, a place called Yugoslavia. This, of course, led to a military conspiracy to assassinate the Serbian monarch who was on good terms with the empires of Europe. And so on June eleventh, nineteen 1903, in what's actually known as the May Coup, members of the Black Hand invaded the royal palace and eventually found King Alexander and Queen Dragna hiding in a wardrobe where they were promptly murdered and their bodies thrown out of a second-story window. All of this is to give background to the ascent of Peter I, the new king of Serbia, a nationalist selected by the Black Hand due to his combative relationship with Austria-Hungary. Over the course of a decade, tension slowly rose between the two countries as King Peter sabotaged their relationship but never did anything that could be seen as a direct act of aggression. Of course, we all know what happens next. On June twenty-eighth, 1914, a young Serbian nationalist named Gavrilo Princip is one of the many assassins tasked by the Black Hand with killing Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir apparent to the Habsburg throne and a reformer who sought to give the empire's ethnic groups power within its political system. After a series of mishaps, including a poorly thrown bomb and a jamming gun, it seemed that the Archduke had made it through his visit unscathed. That is until his chauffeur made a wrong turn and stopped on a street corner directly in front of a sullen and dejected Govrilo, Princip, convinced that he had missed his chance. Princip saw his opportunity and gunned down Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie. Austria-Hungary, understandably quite upset, comes looking for payback, issuing an ultimatum under the threat of war that it knew Serbia would be unable to accept setting into motion an escalation of alliances that would throw the world into the bloodiest war it had ever known. This period of escalation was called the July Crisis. On August 2nd, 1914, the Ottoman Empire officially allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary, but remained non-committal to the war effort. The Ottoman Empire, you see, was known as the Sick Old Man of Europe. They were quickly losing grip of their empire, and their military was disorganized and unprofessional, and everyone pretty much knew that their days were numbered. As a result, nobody really considered them an overwhelming threat, and so early major battles in the Great War were largely confined to Europe. Now when we think about World War I, we largely think about trench warfare, but that wasn't how things started out. In the beginning of World War I, generals still used tactics from, essentially, the Napoleonic Wars. And as a result, not only were these first confrontations incredibly deadly, but it meant that the front line moved a considerable amount. The Germans were following something called the Schlieffen Plan, which meant invading France by going through Belgium. Trench warfare emerged at the First Battle of the Marne in September 1914, when German forces were mere 20 miles from Paris. The Allied victory, known as the Miracle of the Marne, not only repelled the Germans and signified the failure of the Schlieffen Plan, but showed the defensive capabilities of trench warfare. As a result, the front lines hardened, and armies that previously had been fighting to capture miles and miles of territory now fought tooth and nail for mere feet. As a result of this effective freeze on the Western Front, Allied military strategists decided that the best way to end the war would be, much like in World War II, to attack their enemy's soft underbelly. Thirty years later, it would be Italy, but in 1915 it was the Ottoman Empire. Now, Ottoman Turkey, and Turkey today, as you may know, is split between Europe and Asia. It's a water divide. Water flows from the Black Sea, down the Bosphorus River through Istanbul, into the Sea of Mamara, which then flows out into the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean through the Dardanelles Strait. Now the Dardanelles is bounded on one side by mainland Turkey, and on the other by the Gallipoli Peninsula. Whomever controlled the movement through the Dardanelles controlled not only the Black Sea, home of the Allied Imperial Russian Black Sea Fleet, but also access to the vulnerable underside of Germany, and Austria-Hungary. And so it was decided that capturing Gallipoli and defeating the already weak Ottoman Empire would be key to winning the war. Now, this was accomplished in multiple ways. I'm sure you've probably heard of the desert campaign of T.E. Lawrence, who worked to incite an anti-Ottoman Arab revolt at the behest of the British government. But the one that's relevant to this episode is the Gallipoli campaign of 1915. Now, for my own sake... I'm not going to talk about the entire thing. It lasted a little under a year, and there is just truly an overwhelming amount of information to deal with here. If this is something that especially interests you, then I definitely say to go check out the sources in the description. What you need to know is that the Allies tried to force open the Dardanelles Strait through naval warfare, but poor planning and poor weather, combined with outdated warships, doomed that effort to failure. By the spring of 1915, the only viable option seemed to be a troop landing on the rocky and labyrinthine beaches of Gallipoli. The Allies thought that the operation would be a pushover. After all, they were fighting the old man of Europe. They even went so far as to confidently teach their troops how to recognize from afar when an Ottoman soldier was surrendering. You can probably imagine where this is going. Through troop movements and garrisons, the Allies showed their hand. The Ottomans knew that they would be attempting a beachhead landing at Gallipoli, and set about fortifying their positions as the Allies waited for four weeks to take action. On April 25, 1915, landing forces comprised primarily of Australians and New Zealanders landed on the beaches and quickly realized that all of their intelligence had been wrong. The Ottomans were well defended and reinforced and successfully controlled the high ground with strategic gun emplacements. Allied maps were incorrect, causing thousands of soldiers to become hopelessly lost in the maze of valleys near the shore. The Ottomans more than held their own, and under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal, who would later be known as Ataturk, the first president of Turkey, Ottoman forces ended up killing 56,000 people. Now, of course, That's a spectacularly large amount of people, but in terms of World War I, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. At Verdun, there were 976,000 casualties. At the Battle of the Somme, there were 1.2 million. So why am I spending any time at all talking about Gallipoli? Well, it's because I really want to talk about its cultural and human legacy. World War I was a human meat grinder, and I think it's very much to our detriment that it isn't necessarily taught that way. For Australia and New Zealand, the Gallipoli campaign was a trial by fire that helped create a national identity out of the bounds of the British Empire, in turn helping create movements for independence. So that's the ideological impact. But what of the people? And this is really what I've been working towards this entire time. There is a there is a song called Waltzing Matilda, which is thought to be the unofficial national anthem of Australia. It's not about dancing. The phrase Waltzing Matilda is Australian slang for traveling by foot with a bedroll slung over your back. And so, in order to kind of give you a little tiny glimpse into the human cost of war, I want to play you a song that actually inspired me to do this episode. This is Liam Clancy singing a piece originally authored by Eric Bogle called And the Band Played Waltzing Matilda. I know this is a little different of an episode this week, a little bit shorter, but I'd like to thank you very much for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.
1: Now when I was a young man i carried my pack and i lived the free life of the rover from the Murray's green basin to the dusty outback i waltzed my matilda all over Then in 1915 my country said son it's time to stop rambling there's work to be done So they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun and they sent me away to the war. And the band played waltzing Matilda as the ship pulled away from the quay. And amid all the tears, flag waving and cheers. We sailed off for Gallipoli Well, I remember that terrible day When our blood stained the sand and the water And how in that hell that they called Suvla Bay We were butchered like lambs at the slaughter Johnny Tark, he was ready Oh, he primed himself well He rained us with bullets And he showered us with shell And in five minutes flat We were all blown to hell Nearly blew us back home to Australia And the band played waltzing Matilda When we stopped bury our slain, and we buried ours and the Turks buried theirs and it started all over again those who were living just try to survive in that mad world of blood death and fire and for ten weary weeks I kept myself alive Though around me The corpses piled higher Then a big turkey shell Knocked me arse overhead And when I awoke In my hospital bed And saw what it had done And I wished I were dead Never knew there were worse things than dying no more, I'll go waltzing Matilda All around the green bush far and near For to hump tent and pegs, a man needs both legs No more waltzing Matilda for me They collected the wounded, the crippled, the maimed and they shipped us back home to Australia the armless, the legless, the blind, the insane those proud, wounded heroes of Souvler and when the ship pulled into circular quay I looked at the place where my legs used to be and thanked Christ There was no one there waiting for me To grieve and to mourn and to pity And the band played waltzing Matilda As they carried us down the gangway But nobody cheered They just stood there and stared They turned all their faces away So now every April I sit on my porch And I watch the parade pass before me I see my old comrades How proudly they march Renewing their dreams of past glory I see the old men, all tired, stiff and sore The weary old heroes of a forgotten war And the young people alas, what are they marching for? And I ask myself the same question And the band plays waltzing Matilda and the old men still answer the call. But year after year, the numbers get fewer. Someday no one will march there at all. Walsing Matilda, Walsing Matilda, who'll come a war? sing Matilda with me and their ghosts may be heard as they march by the upon who'll oh, come a-waltzing oh, Matilda